On Friday, April 8th, a crew of four private astronauts launched from Kennedy Space Center to head to the International Space Station, becoming the first fully private mission to do so. So we thought it was only right to have a little bit of an in-depth discussion about this mission, what it is, who they are, and why it's so important. If you have any thoughts on this mission, we'd love to hear them. Send them to us at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please do continue hitting that share button for us. It really is very much appreciated. But right now, enjoy episode 85 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles. Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 85 of our podcast. I'm going to start with some sad news. One of the original Canadian astronauts, Vianney Trigverson, died on the 5th of April at the age of 76. Uh, he was originally selected by the Canadian Space Agency in 1983, but Trigverson's only trip to space took place in August 1997 on the Space Shuttle Discovery as part of the STS-85 crew. The man had a fascinating life, and we'll post a full obituary in the show notes. Chris Hatfield took to Twitter to say, I lost a good friend today, pioneer astronaut, engineer's engineer, proud parent, inventor, test pilot. A kind, funny, original man. We obviously send out our condolences to his friends and family. Moving on, we actually have some good news as well. Emily, you've got a new job. Tell us more. Starting in May, I'm going to be uh, the director of content for Celestius, which I'm, uh, yes, I'm so excited about this uh, opportunity. I'll just keep it short. Uh, First, I would like to uh, thank everybody at Celestius for this opportunity because uh, it's a company that I freelanced for, for, uh, gosh, nearly, I think nearly a year. And I'm really looking forward to working with them on a full-time basis. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. They're a wonderful team and they're great people. And it's exciting to finally have a full-time aerospace gig, you know, now it's really awesome. So I'm sure I'll get asked a lot of questions (laughs) about, you know, Hey, you know, do you know anything inside about this flight and stuff? Sorry, I can't answer that kind of stuff. I, so <laughs> I'm just putting that out there now because I'm sure I'm going to get text. Hey, can you do like uh, I can't do anything special. I'm sorry. I'm just the person who does the content. Uh, I'm not actually going into space or anything <laughs> like that. As far as I'm aware. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Exactly. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that later this episode when we talk about Axiom Space because I think. You probably need a lot of money, but you can actually apply to participate through their website. It's crazy. Yeah, you can actually apply to be a, an astronaut through there. Pretty interesting. Yeah, really so. Emily, I think that's fantastic news. Absolute congratulations. I know a full-time Thank you. writing gig or content gig for, for aerospace companies, what you've been wanting for quite a while now. So... Uh, well done. That's great news. Hey, I also want to uh, give a shout out to those who came along to my little Yuri's Night uh, shindig last night. We had a great time. And um, I mean, I was a bit selfish because I chose the, the venue because I was having a gig there myself, one of my regular slots. But as midnight approached, someone came up who wasn't there for Yuri's Night and asked if I could play Rocket Man. And literally, we were playing Rocket Man as it turned the 12th of April, which was 
really quite a moment. It was one of those really nice, that's like cool, cool things that happened. And I got to then tell everyone it was the anniversary of the first flight, <laughs> and I'm sure everyone wished I hadn't. But anyway, <laughs> that's still really awesome. Yeah, it meant a lot to me. I enjoyed it, so uh, that was fun. Maybe we'll do it again next year. Anyway, shall we uh, crack on with this week's show? Yes, let's crack on. It feels like a while since we've done a crack on. Yes, it's been a long time. It has been a while. I didn't even do my accent this time because it's it's awful. So, yeah. Spacecraft must go for an orbit. This thing is just performing, just outstanding. On Friday, April 8th, the Axiom 1 mission launched from Kennedy Space Center with a crew of four inside the SpaceX Dragon capsule Endeavor. Yep, that's the same one that was used by Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley on their flight in 2020. They have docked with the International Space Station where they reside as we record this podcast, and they plan to stay on board until April 17th before returning to Earth on April 18th. So next week, they'll be coming back. Yep. So what makes this mission interesting is the fact that it's the first all-private crew to make a trip to the International Space Station. Now, while there have been private astronauts on board the station before, uh, they've been taken alongside NASA astronauts or Roscosmos cosmonauts. Do you know what? That's a mouthful. Anyway, (laughs) we've been talking about this mission in the news section for the last... few months maybe over the last year actually Uh, but we keep saying we'll talk more about it when it happens so here we are axiom space what is it it's a company and it was formed in 2016 with the aim of creating the first commercial space station which is no small undertaking so in 2020 nasa announced that axiom was allowed to use the forward Port of the ISS's Harmony module, and they intend to dock up to five pressurized modules to this port, including one with a large observation window, similar to the Capola. Now, this should start happening in 2024. That's when this first launch of one of those modules is scheduled, but we all know about delays in the aerospace industry. But anyway, for now, the company is planning to organize and fly crewed missions as often as twice a year, assuming that this works alongside whatever NASA has planned. So this mission is the first of its kind, and it was originally expected to be carrying Tom Cruise on board. Wow. Apparently, that's happening on a later flight. So let's have a look at the crew of this mission. Over to you, Emily. (laughs) Commanding the spacecraft is Michael Lopez Alegria. He is a retired NASA astronaut and is now considered a commercial astronaut as well, an astronaut for hire, so to speak. That's a great job title. Right? That is a pretty cool job title. This is his fifth space flight and his second trip to the ISS. Uh, The other three seats were purchased by private astronauts. Uh, Nice work if you can pay for it. That's really cool. (laughs) Who have paid $55 million for the privilege. So if you got that, then, you know, you're good to go. I'll keep saving. Yeah, keep saving your pennies. (laughs) The pilot sitting next to Lopez Alegria is American Larry Connor, a real estate and technology business person who is also a private pilot who has been involved with a number of aerobatic competitions. Next up, we have mission specialist, and I apologize if I ruined his name, Eitan Stibbe from Israel, a former fighter pilot and businessman. He uh, notably became the second Israeli in space after Elon Ramon, who died in the Columbia disaster in 2003, unfortunately. So as a tribute to Ramon, who was Stibbe's commander in the Air Force, Stibbe is flying Ramon's personal notes penned during the STS-107 mission, which was covered with the debris of the space shuttle. And finally, mission specialist Mark Pathy, a Canadian businessman and philanthropist. 
He has become the second Canadian private citizen in space and the 12th Canadian overall in space. So that's kind of a big record in itself, given that there haven't been a lot of Canadian astronauts. Do you know what? That actually surprises me that there's only been 12 Canadians in space. It feels like they should have had more. Do you know what I mean? If you look at their um, core now of uh, astronauts, they don't have many. I mean, they, and they have several who've been waiting for a really long time for a flight. So, yeah, you would you would think that, you know, there'd been more Canadians in space. I remember when the first one uh, went up in space in the 80s, Mark Garneau, I believe. That was a really big deal, you know, back then because it, it was very exciting. They hadn't done that before. So, yeah, I would think since 1984 they would have put there would be more Canadians in space. But there's probably a lot that contributes to that that, you know, I don't know about maybe budgeting or the manifest on the space station and stuff like that, you know, the crew manifest and so forth. But they have had a, a Canadian ISS commander who is Chris Hadfield, which is really cool. Yeah. And he obviously he's a huge, huge celebrity and he's, he's a pretty big ambassador for space flight as well. Yeah. I suppose if one of the 12 is, is one of the most famous astronauts, that's not too bad, is it? Yeah. Now he, he, he did pretty good. He, he did space oddity and, I thought that was pretty awesome. I've seen a few people take pokes at him just because, you know, oh, he did a song in space. But I'm like, everybody saw that. That was so freaking. That was like the best music video ever. You know, you can't really top yeah. being on in space. Absolutely. Yeah, that was the coolest thing ever. Absolutely was. And actually, there's another cool Canadian national thing, which is the first private astronaut from Canada. We're now on the second one with this current mission, but the first one was the founder of Cirque du Soleil, Guy Le Liberté. Yeah, he was the gentleman who brought the clown noses into space. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really cute because he considers himself a clown and I thought it was kind of a neat human touch, you know, to space flight, which, and we're going to talk about this. Uh, Axiom 1 isn't just a private space mission. They're, they're obviously doing actual science on the space station but i think we often forget you know it's okay to have a little bit of fun up there so yeah he brought the clown noses up there as well yeah absolutely so we know what the company is we know who the crew are but what are they doing up there well this might come as a shock to some people but they are actually spending a hundred hours of time in space collectively to work on experiments which is actually one-tenth of their overall hours in orbit, which is actually quite a lot of science. That's a lot of time. And I think a lot of people are keen to label these people as space tourists. But actually, I think that that's probably an unfair description of what they're doing. They're actually trying to do something up there and not just be there and look out the window. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they're doing plenty of being there and looking out the window too. But, you know, there's, there's a lot going on, isn't there? So each of the three paying customers are actually taking on board their own experiments, which they are doing in collaboration with various organizations or charities that they are connected with back on Earth to, to actually do something meaningful. And I think that's really great. And it, and it gets to the core of what this mission is all about and why it's important and why you can knock the idea of billionaires going to space, but actually... When they're doing something like this, you've got to say, well, fair play. You've got the money. You've spent the $55 million, which I think is not as expensive as it could have been. And they're then doing something for the greater good as well, which they don't have to. Yeah. I'll be honest. If I had access to that much money, I'd go to space too. Why not? You would. Yeah, why not? Yeah. And and it's not, like you said, it's not like they're just going up there and, you know, chilling. They're, they're actually doing, you know, work up there 
I can read through some of what they're doing. Yeah, go for it. Connor is working with Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic, examining cells that have stopped dividing and their uh, relation to heart health. He's also doing pre and post mission MRIs uh, to see how space flight ex- affects the spinal and brain tissue. So that's actually a pretty big deal if you think about it. I've I've often wondered that myself. Like, how does space affect you know your brain? Like, does it shrink? Does yeah. it not shrink? Like. That's something we might want to find out. And, you know, MRIs, when you think about it, that's a relatively new technology. They only started using those like 30-something years ago. We didn't know for the first few years in spaceflight, you know, because we had no way to test that. I'm sure we did a news article recently about some Russian cosmonauts had done a similar thing, but over a bigger length of time. So actually, this is something that hasn't been done that often either. Or, or much. So there's a huge amount to be learned from this. And although these these guys have obviously gone through their training to, to go up there, you, you wouldn't necessarily say that they are, well, maybe they are, but because they're not uh, NASA astronauts, for example, they're not necessarily in the shape you would expect a NASA astronaut to be. And that may be massively unfair, but they're a bit more normal like you and I, I would like to think. So seeing the impact on their brain and their body is perhaps a better indication on what it might mean for the likes of you or I to go up into space. Yeah, a regular person who doesn't work out, you know, two to four hours a day for fun, you know, just yeah. just for fun, you know? Um, <laughs> if you hear a meow, my cat Smokey is bothering me, so, but I'm going to continue. <laughs> yes, I like that. Power on. Continuing on, Pathy is working for the Montreal Children's Hospital, a group of, uh, Canadian Research Universities, and the Royal Canadian Geographical Society on several research projects. This first one is incredible, by the yeah. way. This is ridiculous. This is blowing my mind. This is mind. like Star Trek level type stuff. Yes. Um, a two-way holoportation system allowing users to communicate remotely using two 3D projections as holograms. That's pretty much like Star Trek right there. <laughs> What? I'm not. What? I know. I'm not sure I even understand what that is fully, but it sounds like Star Trek to me. Like, we're just going to start transporting people, you know, via hologram, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like that whole Star Wars thing with uh, Princess Leia yeah. at the start. You're my only hope. Like, with R2D2. Like, is that? That is basically what this is. Pretty much. It's crazy. Yeah, that's basically what this is. It, it, it's just friggin' nuts. So I, I can't wait. To see that, because that was something, you know, when you watch those shows and, you know, the movies when you're a kid, you're like, man, when are we going to get that? Like, I, but then again, I thought we were going to be flying, you know, cars by this point, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, he is also studying chronic pain and sleep disturbances, uh, which is very helpful. If, you, if you've ever known people with those, they could use some help. And he's doing Earth observation activities to better understand the impacts of global warming and the urbanization on the planet. So these are all really helpful things. And next, Stibbe is uh, working for the Ramon Foundation in collaboration with the Israeli Space Agency and Israeli government, working on a number of disciplines, including astrophysics, agriculture, optics, communication, biology, healthcare, neurology, and ophthalmology. So they're really encompassing everything yeah they're covering a lot of ground as well as their own experiments they're actually also doing some stuff for other companies as well they've been commissioned to do some other experiments so we'll talk through a few of these now the first one uh, is called the tesserai which sounds like it's in a marvel movie <laughs> yes it does that. i'm like uh is that is that something they want to be doing like really 
And, uh, are you guys sure? Yeah, the, yeah Loki's <laughs> going to come onto the uh, International Space Station and uh, wreak havoc. Yeah, I'm like, it's 2022. Are y'all sure you want to do this? You know, <laughs> yeah. really? <laughs> okay, so this is uh, Tesla-rated stands for the Tesla-rated electromagnetic space structures for the exploration of reconfigurable adaptive environments. No wonder they shortened it. Yeah. So this project will test technology that forms swarms of self-assembling robots oh, God, no. that can be used for a <laughs> range of constructions, including extra space station modules. Uh, the work is a collaboration with MIT, along with the Aurelia Institute. Anyway, that's ridiculous. Oh, that's insane. Tesserae self-assembling robots. Mmm. Recipe for disaster in my mind. Yeah, it sounds kind of like if they did like a, a thing to like, you know, oh, we're going to hatch dinosaurs again. Like, no, yeah. maybe not. Maybe this is a, we're going to do, we're going to hatch dinosaurs on the ISS and just see what happens. Like, don't do yeah. that. Maybe we should think <laughs> twice. It is 2022. Anything can happen. Like, okay. <laughs> Uh, the next one is modeling tumor organoids in Earth uh, low Earth orbit. This is actually really cool uh, if you're interested yeah. in medicine and you know mitigating cancer and things like that. Obviously, cancer is still around in 2022. This experiment mm -hmm. uh, seeks to use human cancer stem cells in a cancer stem cell reporter system, and it will evaluate early cancer-induced organ impacts thanks to the faster aging that occurs in microgravity. That's a really cool idea. Uh, collaborators yeah. include the University of California, San Diego, and the Sanford uh, Consortium for Regenerative Medicine. That's really cool. Yeah, it is. Now, I can't remember where I was reading this recently. I think it was Nicole Stott's book, but in a book I was reading recently, they were talking about why the research on cancer cells on the ISS is so important, and they've learned so much more from it than they do in laboratories on the ground. I think it's because the cells are able to be more like they are when they're in the human body, like the, the way they float is more like they are in a human body rather than being uh, in a Petri dish, for example. So this kind of stuff is really important. They've got to send more people up to do more research. Uh, and so the more people are up there doing it, the better, in my opinion. Exactly. So, so important. Okay, so they're also doing a Japanese project, the Japan Manned Space Scientist Corporation, JAMS. Jams. So they have taken on board a photocatalyst, which is an air purification device, which is pretty crazy. And it's going to be used for a technical demonstration to evaluate its performance. So the device will use light to convert air gases into water and carbon dioxide. Wow. Crazy. What? Crazy. So this is a, a, a collaboration with Jams and the Tokyo University of Science and the Tokyo University of Agriculture and Technology. Now, you can already see how many uses that might have, just with our limited knowledge of science, Emily. That's pretty crazy. And they've got the jams. They got the jams, yeah. <laughs> Finally, uh, we have Trish, uh, the Translational uh, Research Institute for Space Health, or the acronym is Trish. This consortium will collect a range of data about the passengers, uh, astronauts, including uh, conducting physical and cognitive tests for measuring balance and vision. Their plan is to create a research database from the information to learn about impacts upon human health. And this will really come handy, you know, as we transition a long duration uh, missions to the moon and, and hopefully Mars someday. Uh, the consortium includes the Baylor College of Medicine, uh, the California Institute of Technology and MIT. So 
that is really cool. And it's really good that they're creating like, you know, a database about that stuff because they, I feel like they need, you know, something to, to track all this, you know, and to see effects over time, you know, because we're really going to need that information. Um, yeah. Huh, I'm, oh my God, I'm trying, I'm like trying not to mention a certain space station on this episode. But um, I'm really You're doing trying. Really well, in fairness, twenty minutes in, Emily. You're doing pretty well. Wow, yeah, I'm twenty minutes in, and I didn't do it yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they still have the results, <laughs> the medical results from those missions. If you know what I'm talking about, and that's all I'm gonna say about that. I will not mention the name. It's a lab in the sky. Okay, uh, there you go. Before we move on, we've just gone through some of the things they're going to be doing up there. To me, it's amazing they're going to do all of that in 100 hours between them. <laughs> That's I know. so much to do. That's a That's lot. so much to do. Uh, so hopefully they're able to get everything done because that is a hell of a lot of work. And there's also the added jeopardy of there being self-assembling robots, which, let's be honest, if uh, they develop a mind of their own, they could kick out the jams. Ah, see what I, did there? I see what you're saying. Hey, yeah. ah, <laughs> I am terrified of the idea of self-assembling robots. Oh, but I know. That's why I I'm know. not on the ISS and they are. No, I, I would deal with it. If I could get a ride to space, I, I would tolerate it. I'd be like, okay, it's scary, but it's all right. I'll be okay. Maybe they won't kill me. You yeah, know? hopefully not. Anyway... By highlighting all these experiments, I hope that what we've done is show that each of these astronauts could easily have been selected to be government astronauts had they applied. I mean, you've got a fighter pilot, you've got a pilot, and you've got these clever guys. These people, They know what they're doing. That uh, They're more than qualified to be up there. Uh, their CVs are very impressive. These are very successful people. So... When it comes to should they be up there, should this be happening, the kind of conversations we're hearing uh, a lot around these co- these conversations of billionaires going to space, well, yes, I think they're proving that, aren't they? Yeah, I think if you look at, and this is not Axiom 1, this is the current uh, Polaris program with Jared Isaacman as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, he's rich. Yeah, these these people have a lot of money, but they're not just... I would. I might have... A moral issue if they were just going up there to like joyride or something like that and you know if they just had this you know laissez-faire attitude like whatever i'm going to space but they're really reading through the experiments list and reading through their cvs you know these are very accomplished people i would even say that a lot of the earlier private astronauts like richard garriott for example you know Mm -hmm. you know richard garriott isn't just some dude who paid money to go to the iss this is somebody who's you know a very like a genius programmer who has really i feel leveraged his influence and wealth to do pretty awesome stuff you know so i i personally don't have an issue with it you know morally just because i feel like they're using that for you know very good purposes and i agree with you i reading through these guys's biographies i'm like Man, any of them easily could have made it into the regular astronaut force if they'd applied. I personally don't see a problem with that. And I'm sure they have to meet physical standards to get up there. I mean, yeah, Yeah. they look more regular than NASA astronauts. You know, they probably don't work out two to four hours a day, you know, and have 2% body fat. But, you know, at the same time... I'm sure they still have to reach some kind of physical standard to get up there. Yeah, well, we we learned that with the Inspiration Four mission exactly. as well, didn't we? You know, the documentary there and 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 learning about their experience. 
to, to go up on one of these SpaceX Dragon flights, it's a lot of training. It's actually yeah. a lot of training they have to do. It's not like the suborbital flights that we're seeing from Blue Origin and uh, and Virgin Galactic, for example. An orbital flight has a lot more demands, there's a lot more unknowns, there's a lot more risk involved. So you need to make sure that these people can do the job. Uh, and there's probably plenty of parameters these organisations have to make sure that the the people involved, no matter how much they're paying, are meeting those parameters, especially in these early days of commercial spaceflight. Yeah, exactly. And Smokey's back. Sorry. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, yeah, like you said, you know, uh, orbital flights, you know, they require a lot more work. We still don't know why people, some people get space sick and some people don't. So, yeah, they're, they're sacrificing quite a bit for their own health to actually do this, you know, because I always think, you know, I want to go to space. I'd love to go to space someday. Physically, that's not easy, you know, and yeah. not everybody can do that for a reason, you know, and these guys are astronauts as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. I think also what's interesting is that when you look at these people and, and the organizations they're paired with and they're collaborating with, philanthropy is at the core of what they do. Exactly. And that's pretty important and we've seen it again with Jared Isaacman and Inspiration4 and Polaris they're super successful people they've made a lot of money yes they're doing something which lots of people would like to do it's a bit of a joyride perhaps but they're using that opportunity to do some good and we need to be better as space communicators in getting that message to people who don't think it's worth it and that's something we've talked about time and time again on this podcast but you particularly look at the the cancer research that's going on and what they're doing there. Exactly. These missions are actually going to change life on Earth for the better uh, in the long run. So why? where's the harm in this? Where is the harm? I, I'm all for it. and I'm all for them being called astronauts as well. Absolutely. I mean, I'll say it a million times. I've said it before. As somebody who's been to an oncologist's office and you've, you see people suffering, you know, you see people in there sick and bald and just suffering really bad because they're fighting this. It, to me, if spaceflight existed only yeah. for cancer research, I would be fine with that. Honestly, I would be fine with that because cancer is it, when you see it up close, it's still killing people. We talk about, well, it's not as bad as it used to be. You know, there's still ones out there that, you know, are, are not as fightable as others. Uh, to me, if that's the only thing that came out of spaceflight, I would be okay with that morally because I'm like, people are going to have more days on Earth and be able to spend time with their family yeah. and be able to spend time having fun and doing what they love, you know? So, hey, I think it's, I think it's great that, you know, they're, they're doing that. Yeah, for sure. And I think the precedent has been set by Inspiration4 and now Axiom that private space flight should have a bigger picture objective. And these flights seem to be doing that. And I was doing some research and it appears that within the business model for private space stations is the idea that the rich paying customers fund uh, scientists and engineers to go up alongside them to be able to do more research and create more technology, which is going to help both life on Earth and the future of our civilization as we move forward. Uh, so for me, these are so important. And it's difficult to see how government can do these kind of things. This really has to come from the private, uh, from private companies. I would love it if the government did it. 
I love big government projects. I'm one of those people. Sorry if you don't like that, but I am one of those people. I love the Apollo program because it was a country coming together. I wish it was my country, but it wasn't. Uh, a country coming together to do something big and grand and inspiring. And the current world we live in doesn't really allow that. So it's got to come from private companies. And if they can inspire people on the way and do bigger things and make sure that something good comes out of it, then great. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. In the United States, I think our situation has gotten better with the government we have now, but the government's focus is really still not, you know, it's not space flight. And I understand why. Yeah. I, I think when you really look at, you know, the future of space flight, not to, you know, take credit from NASA at all. I think, you know, they're going to be prod the pro a lot of the projects are going to be done, you know, sort of in concert, you know, NASA with somebody else like this. Just, just like this. Exactly. You know, NASA is part of it. You know, I think we're just seeing the beginning of what the future will look like, you know, where you're going to have organizations just working in tandem together, privately funded and government funded together. And hey, the more the better. So there's, there's one other thing I'd like to bring up, and that's that Axiom have their own mission control in Houston, which I think is also interesting. Uh, they've trialed it before on some technology uh, or, or some probes and things like that i think uh but this is the first time it's been used obviously to to run a crewed mission um and i think that's really interesting that uh you've got an, another mission control operating uh within the international space station and that's got to cause some problems but again it's about working in collaboration and in tandem uh with each other in order to get the best results but i just think it's a really interesting facet of this mission uh, that often gets overlooked yep absolutely also i know i said one more thing they're doing nfts in space now I'm going to leave it there because I still don't know what that means. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. <laughs> so if someone wants to give me the cliff notes on what it is, please feel free to send them to me. I, I thought they were noses, feet, and teeth for cats. <laughs> There's a meme that I, I stole that. There's a meme that shows that. But I honestly, it's like, yeah, I'm into NFTs, noses, feet, and teeth. And it's... <laughs> I have no idea what an NFT is, and I apologize. I'm not. I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail. How dare you make fun of NFTs? I don't know what they are. So if anybody wants to write us or you know email us or, or do whatever, notes, please Cliff let us notes. know because I have no idea. So no just idea. let us. I just know. know they're doing them, and I know they did them on Inspiration Four as well. I yep. think it's a way of making money. Non fungible tokens. It's something yeah. to do with art, or it seems to be something to do with art. That's about all I've I've got from it. Uh, and yep. there was some little pixelated thing which is worth millions. I don't get it. I don't get it. But, you know, I'm sure it's the future. Anyway, yeah. moving on. And so on to this week's news. As well as the Axiom 1 launch, there have been two other launches since we recorded last week. One in Russia and one in China. And I will put details of those launches in the show notes. Although, as is often the case with some of the Russian and Chinese launches, we don't have videos. The Artemis 1 wet dress rehearsal is finally resuming, but it won't feature a fueling of the rocket's upper stage, which means it won't cover as much ground as NASA had originally hoped. After last week's delays and while waiting for the Axiom 1 mission to launch, the Artemis 1 team were going to start the test on April 11th, but there was a problem with the helium check valve in the launch tower. Basically, they use helium to purge the fuel lines before they load the rocket with fuel. 
So they've decided not to do that instead. Uh, plenty of data has been gathered from the test thus far, and they're hoping even with this modified test, they'll learn a lot about the rocket and the Orion spacecraft. Uh, this really does mean it's unlikely uh, that we'll see this rocket launch before June, though. Yeah, they've still not said what the date is likely to be, but you'd imagine this is going to delay it a little bit further, that's for sure. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know what we've not spoken about for a while? And that's the James Webb Space Telescope. I say for a while, it's probably been about three episodes, but that's a lot. So you might be wondering what it's up to. Well, the observatory is in the process of cooling down. So the main infrared instruments need to be, and wait for this, these numbers just blow my mind, minus 369.4 degrees <laughs> Fahrenheit, which converts to minus 223 degrees Celsius. That's silly low temperature. Anyway, and one of the instruments needs to be even cooler than that. So the mid-infrared instrument, which is known as MIRI, nice name, uh, has got to be minus 447 degrees Fahrenheit, which converts to 260, minus 266 degrees Celsius, which is actually only a few degrees above absolute zero, which is the temperature where the motion of atoms stop. That's nuts. Crazy. All right, so you may remember us talking about this with Mark McCorkran uh, from the European Space Agency la uh, late last year uh, and how the low temperature is the reason that this telescope will be able to see so much more than Hubble. So check out that interview if you haven't already. Now, to reach this low temperature, Webb has a cryo-cooler, which according to NASA is essentially a sophisticated refrigerator I love the fact they use that term, <laughs> uh, which actively cools Miri without consuming coolant. So it can be continued to do this for the lifetime of the observatory, which is pretty cool. So once Miri is fully operational, it will be able to detect the light of the most distant stars in the universe and also look through the dust clouds within our own galaxy to see how stars are formed, which is absolutely crazy. And actually, talking about temperature cooling down and, and stuff like that have you seen the stuff about neptune yes i i just i just saw that i'm like uh should we be worried like what's going on man yeah so should neptune has cooled down over the last 20 years and they're not sure why yeah that's that's, that's the premise of the of the article right or, or, yeah. the, or the study yeah the the blue planet and it's already cold but now it's gotten cooler and they're yeah. not sure why and I'm like, do we need to be worried? Like, that's kind of weird, you know? Yeah. <laughs> is absolutely. everything okay? But it's a planet that we know least about, isn't it? You know, we we have barely been there and barely got up close. So I think it's only Voyager, isn't it, that's, that's got close? You are correct. Yeah, only Voyager is taking photos of it. And it's uh, this beautiful, deep, you know, it's kind of a deep blue color. And it's a ice giant. That's all I know about it. And getting I, icier yeah it's one of my favorite planets because it's just so weird like you yeah. know there, I, have, I have questions about it because there's not as much known about it as other planets probably and Venus because that's another one that's crazy but um, yeah well back on Earth construction <laughs> has begun on the Saxavord a spaceport on the Shetland Islands in the north of Scotland with the aim of hosting the first vertical la orbital launch from the UK later this year how about that then, Dave? Yeah, well, Shetland Isle is not close. So. I was about to say that. I, I'm trying to do the... I, 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 you're in London, and I, I know the north of Scotland is a ways, a, a ways out. So, yeah, you're not close to there. Yeah, but but this is this is way, way north of Scotland. Like, the Shetland Isles 
They're essentially at the North Pole, as far as I'm concerned. They're that far. Wow. <laughs> okay, yeah. They're not really. But, Hold on. But yeah, they're a long way north. So you say the UK, very few people in the UK are actually going to be able to see anything that launches from Shetlands. But still, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, see? Sorry, I'm, I'm looking at a map. You just Googled it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to look at a map of it. Holy crap. Yeah, that's a ways out. That is like north north. Yeah, yeah, it's like basically Norway rather, than, rather say, than Scotland. Yeah, it's almost like not even. Hold on. Oh wow, yeah, it's all the way north. Yeah, you're you're a ways out from there. Yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. I don't know if you'll be going there anytime soon. Yeah, so Virgin Orbit are doing a launch this summer, or planning to do a launch this summer from uh, the south coast down in Cornwall, I think. Uh, but obviously, that's not a vertical launch. But you know, it's nice to see things happening in this country. That's for sure. And of course, after all our talk last week about the new animated film Apollo 10 and a Half, A Space Age Childhood, I didn't get around to watching it at the weekend as I hoped. And now there's a new documentary to watch as well, Return to Space. And it's a look at the Demo 2 mission, which Emily mentioned earlier, the flight of the Endeavour SpaceX Dragon capsule with Bob and Doug on board. Uh, and the trailer really does look good. So when I get time, and I have no idea when that's going to be, I will try and watch this and the Apollo 10 and a half animated film. Did you manage to watch it, Emily? I'm embarrassed to say I have not yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really need to. I, I did watch Netflix this weekend and I'm, I regret that I did. I should have watched Apollo 10 and a half instead. I was watching true crime and uh, been, classic Emily. Yeah. I was watching <laughs> true crime, nothing space related. And I, I should have watched something space related because I had nightmares for a couple of days. So I should have watched something fun. It's, it's funny because you've inspired me. I've been watching that dropout documentary on Disney Plus. Oh my God. Elizabeth Holmes one <laughs> we just finished. So, yeah. Um, yeah. She's a trip. <laughs> She's a Lizzie is a trip, man. She gets, Absolutely. She has a lot of dance parties. That's for sure. <laughs> She'd be dancing a lot. All right. <laughs> and finally, something I know I'm going to find the time for, even if I have to book a holiday off at my new job, uh, the trailer <laughs> for the third season of For All Mankind has just dropped. And the first episode will be released on Apple TV on June 10th. And I cannot wait. I'm so excited. It's going to be so good. Just a, a well, I don't want to spoil it too much for everybody. But just the go trailer watch was it. only short, right? The trailer yeah. was only short. But it's only it's, a few uh, seconds. Yeah, that's all you need. I, I loved your response to Chris Marshall on Twitter. She's one of the actresses in the show. She tweeted the trailer, and Emily replied, and I'm paraphrasing here. She said, "I can't wait. I'm already anxious for the impending doom, which yes. is clearly going to happen <laughs> in this season. I don't know what it is, but it's clearly going to happen. Something bad is going to happen, <laughs> yeah. but we're just going to have to wait for it, like." Last season, I, I about died. Still not over it. Yeah, I'm still still not over it. I, I couldn't sleep for like two days, man. I'm still screwed up from that because oh my god, I'm not gonna ruin the season because I, I ruined season one for somebody, and I really apologize for it because I revealed <laughs> I revealed the end on this podcast. So I'm really sorry about that, Chris Spain. But um, still. <laughs> Uh, so I won't spoil season two be for the hey, people who haven't seen it. it's been out for over a year. I don't think spoiling spoiling rules count anymore. I think yeah. there's a time limit on that. I feel sorry, bad. Chris, I feel bad. I'm sorry, Chris. No, I felt like uh, <laughs> I was listening to the Ron Burgundy podcast once on a, and it was a true crime one. And he like he ruined the whole thing. He revealed who the killer was at the beginning. And I was like, <laughs> that's me. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. Well, yeah. For all mankind. Can't wait. Can't wait. Hey, the terrain's flat, John. 
And that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And as always, a huge thank you to those who have shared the podcast and to those who are supporting us on Patreon. You really are filling us with so much pride. I know that's a weird thing to say, but it's really true. It really does mean a lot that you're doing anything for us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'll be back next week with a great interview with Andy Saunders, which we recorded earlier today. Uh, It's truly fascinating stuff. But for now, don't forget that in space, no one can... Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.